It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It woke me up in the middle of the night. It's about 3, 3.30, and I heard the crash, boom, bam, just like, you know, earth-shattering. Someone had driven a car, come racing down the street, and had crashed it into their yard. And when I went outside, the doors were open and the car was still running, the lights and stuff were on. So I called 911. Not long after Tristan Cotton realized he was trans and began transitioning, he started to grapple with all kinds of new sensations and experiences. And as a black trans man, one particularly stark experience was how his relationship to the police suddenly changed. So when I saw the blue lights coming out where the car is, there was a young white cop, he's probably a couple inches taller than me, and he turns around, immediately he pulls his gun. And I I put my hands up and he said, stop, right there. And I thought someone was actually behind me. I didn't think he was talking to me. And he said, get down on the ground. And when I looked back, I didn't see anybody. And I was like, oh my God, this is, he's talking about me. And I tried to talk. I said, I, I'm, I called, and I went, shut up. Get down on the ground. Now. Down on the ground. I got down on the ground, brother. So after that, um, I, I realized I, I, you, can't, you, you can't call the police. So as he wrote in the Washington Post last year, Tristan wasn't under any illusions about racism or police brutality. But now he saw the danger in a far more visceral way. Through that experience and others, he became aware of his new place in American society, something that most black and brown men learn more gradually throughout their lives. I'm Eamon Ismail, and you're listening to Man Up. On this show every week, we tell honest stories about our lives and investigate where we get our ideas about what it means to be a man. So I remember this really vividly, but I think I might have been too young to really know what it meant. I was about eight, hanging out in the park with some friends from the mosque. We were competing to see who could collect the shiniest and smoothest rocks, until we were approached by a police officer. He told us that he had seen us throwing the rocks, which we weren't, but he detained us anyway. Again, we were only eight. I remember not even being tall enough to see through the tiny window in the back of his cop car. Our parents had to come get us. My mother was upset. She'd been looking for me, thinking I might have been kidnapped or something. It'd be several years before I really understood what was happening. This was only my first interaction with the cops, and I've had a lot. Not unlike Tristan that night, face down on his driveway. We were both discovering how people, especially the police, reacted to us as black and brown-bodied men. But his journey there was very different than mine. I think I'd wanted to transition for quite some time. Uh, I was living in the Bay Area, and I transitioned when I was 37, which is about 12 years ago. Actually, it was about 13 years ago. And um, I'd always felt uh, uh, male-identified and uh, in terms of my gender and gender consciousness. Uh, at the time when I uh, was coming of age, I came out as lesbian, like a lot of guys, because uh, there was very little information about trans men. Once Tristan realized who he was... The change came quickly. It wasn't a marathon for me. It was more like a sprint. 
within a year and a half, I had um, transitioned hormonally. He grew something he'd always wanted, a beard. You know, you don't have your beard for 35 years, and you finally get your <laughs> opportunity, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to enjoy yeah. it. And I groomed it, and, you know, it had a nice oh, big man. beard, big sideburns. And I realized at some point, you know, because in airports, I would get pulled over, you know, I'd get stuck at customs to try to get back in the country. They'd ask me a million questions, <laughs> dumb, inane. Uh, and then I realized, it was like, oh, my God, they these people have clocked me. They, they think I'm a Muslim. That's, that's what they think. <laughs> I learned to keep my beard short in a similar way. My mom would remind me to trim before flying. No, amen, fix that. I don't want them to think you're with the Muslim Brotherhood. So I created those associations too. Tristan had no reason to believe that was a consequence of having a beard before growing one himself. Before he transitioned, actually, he saw law enforcement very differently. In a general sense, I didn't have problems with police officers, whereas today I... I I drive out of my rearview mirror. I try not to even get stopped. Or, <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, I've had some. It, in my previous embodiment, I've been caught speeding. You know, 105 miles an hour one time coming home for Christmas Eve. Me and a. That's really fast. <laughs> yeah, it's very. I didn't know it. I would. Yeah, I, 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 I. In my defense, I'm actually pretty observant of traffic laws. I'm one of those people who drive <laughs> you crazy. Uh, dropping. I, I'll stop full stop at a stop sign you know uh but in this case it was late at night and we had been driving i had driven all the way from maine to western mass and then we came down and uh we we're just trying to get home i had no idea how fast i was going so we get pulled over by a probably middle-aged white trooper and my friend is also african-american female um she's brown complected dreads long all down to her you know shoulders we were too, too clearly two black and brown people and um he just gave us a ticket but i found out later in this in that state normally they take your car when you're going 40 or yeah 50 miles over the speed wow. limit wow. um there was another instance 1995 actually prior to that um the atlanta braves finally made it to the world series and I was going over to a friend's house. We were going to watch the series, um, you know, together. And he smoked weed, and you know, we drank beer or whatever, mm-hmm. and um, got stopped. And I was in a truck, and, you know, the car is just reeking of marijuana. And I thought, oh, God, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm going up now. Yeah. Turns out he was a Braves fan. We start talking about what? baseball, and we st- <laughs> I'm not kidding you. We started going back through the years when the Yankees won, when the Mets won, and you know didn't even anything about the pot either. Like you know, it's just like I couldn't believe you know. <laughs> uh, I'm so used to the opposite of that, where I get pulled over and I'm not smoking weed, and they smell it anyway. Oh, oh, exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, oh, and man. and that brings me to kind of like what happens today is is today nowadays, like I don't. Uh, smoke, you know, in the car. I didn't smoke any. You shouldn't be doing that anyway. But I mean, just, um, you know, to carry around in the car or anything like that. And I get pulled over. I got pulled over um, in uh, one night. It's about three o'clock in the morning. The first two questions, and I wonder if you get this. The first two questions out of his mouth were, are you on parole or probation? Do you have any drugs or weapons in the car? Wow. And I'm looking at him like, are you kidding me yeah. it's 3 a.m i'm a tenured university professor i'm 45 years old wow <laughs> I'm a businessman tristan has a few more stories like this and honestly so do i it's one of those inescapable realities of being a dark-skinned man in america tristan was experiencing a culture shock 
brown men. Uh, you get a, you learn at some point uh, what your body means to white America, and then yeah, you have to yeah. learn how to how to comport yourself in a particular way so that you can survive. And beyond that, sometimes comporting yourself in a particular way means deferring to what you know is illegitimate authority, deferring to a power over abuse, um, because you need to live past that moment. But uh, that moment itself, if not dealt with, I think in a therapeutic way, in a way that's healthy, can uh, become internalized. There's a very distinct memory I have when we were, you know, we were, we're kids. We're, we're still not at that age where we even consider ourselves to be grown. But we were growing, right. so we looked more grown than I guess than we actually were. But we were riding in the back of the bus, uh, going home from like freshman year of co- of high school, having fun. The bus driver pulls over and walks over to the back and says, "Hey, you guys need to get off. We're changing the route." We were like, "Oh, that's weird," but we're little kids, so we say, "Okay, we get off." And then the bus just immediately goes in the direction that we're the direction of home. We we're like, "What the hell happened?" Mm-hmm. And we had to have a moment mm-hmm. with each other, thinking oh, well, we're wearing these big white tees, we're wearing basketball jerseys, um, we have, like, dreads and braids in our hair, do-rags, like, w- what did we look like to this person? And why did they feel as though that they needed to uh, create distance between us? Did they feel threatened? Did they feel as though if they, we stayed on the bus, something bad would happen? Um, and that was, that was sort of a wake-up call. Before that, we fought mm-hmm. like kids, you know? Right. And who knows, perhaps you were perceived as criminals or thugs and sort of dealt with uh, preemptively, so to speak. I mean, I think that's sometimes what's behind um, the the policing of, of black and brown men is the assumption that we're all criminals, we're all thugs. This is why I've felt for so much of my life an anxiety um, when it comes to being around police. Mm-hmm. From a very early age, I felt almost conditioned to feel anxiety whenever... Uh, whenever I'm in a, a place that I would consider to be like a sensitive place, mostly just um, white spaces with heightened security. I mean, in New York, I, I my first mm-hmm. job as a photographer was to take pictures of the new World Trade Center at Ground Zero that was that was still being constructed at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I argued with my editor. I was like, I don't feel safe going there. There's so many of those uh, right. cops with tattoos who look like they're gang members with assault weapons and machine guns who are, I don't feel comfortable mm-hmm. being around. Not that I think that if I walk in, they'll open fire, but I feel as though because of the way that I look and I'm conscious of the way that I look and the way that I might look to them, I don't want to put myself in that circumstance to begin with. So I won't even touch the systemic structural. I, I just, I, I don't know what we would do systemically or structurally, but I, I do know that my experience has forced me to think about how to care for myself better. Mm-hmm. and to think about ways in which men can care for ourselves better. Because one of the things um, that I've learned is that the incredible amount of, and I think you're speaking to it too, the anxiety and the fear, um, constantly sort of looking over your shoulders, um, constraining your life in ways um, that you'll be as safe as possible. Uh, these things have an, uh, taken enormous emotional and spiritual impact on us. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So one of the things that you mentioned were, uh, was that you also stopped wearing like hoodies, right? You, you, cha- you mm. tried to change the way that you presented yourself, hoping that that would alter the way that people perceived you. Can you talk to me a little bit yeah. about how, how you made that choice? Uh, I used to wear, you know, hoodies. Those things were comfortable for me. Hoodies, oversized T-shirts, baggy jeans, a big shoes. I mean, just what you would see any other probably adolescent young man on a train with. And what I realized is um, I got followed in stores. Mm-hmm. Most of the things I buy are online. If I want to buy something, I'll just go on Amazon and get it yeah. or some other thing. I, why bother going into a store and having security follow me around? Wow. Um, I, you know, I still have my, my gear, so to speak. I hang out with my friends. I wear it then. It's hard to let that stuff go because as you probably, maybe you feel, I don't know, but I, for me, it's part of my identity, and it's yeah. part of identity I love and enjoy. Um, so I still have those clothes, but, um, like today I came in, you know, with a pair of, uh, hush puppies, <laughs> hush puppies and nice. some stonewall jeans and, uh, a sweater and uh, a hat, you know, cause this is how I typically, at least when I go into stores, I'm gonna, may not be treated as, as, as badly. And it doesn't get around the issue with police pulling me over in the car, mm-hmm. but I get, I tend to have a better, uh, interaction with police if I get pulled over and I'm dressed this way. Was that something that you thought of before you transitioned? I had no idea. <laughs> this, this, all yeah. of this was a surprise. This was the part, you know, and this was, uh, it's not that I didn't, knew, I knew black men um, and Latino men and, and men of uh, Muslim faith. I knew men were oppressed. Um, I had a concept of it, though. And I, I didn't have a, like an experience. I had only a theoretical idea about that. And that's a really different uh, having a concept knowledge is different from knowledge that you discover for yourself in your yeah. own, you know, through yeah. your own existence. And so I didn't have a clue. And I think uh, partly because I didn't get to go to the Manning Up School of Boys, I didn't get that learning experience. But mm-hmm. but also because as, um, as someone who'd been part of lesbian and feminist spaces and in, in academia for so long, uh, the discourse is that men have privilege, men are privileged, and women are disadvantaged, and, and that's certainly true, but it's not true when you start looking at individual circumstances and contexts, and uh, it's more complicated than that. And so there was nothing in that discourse that prepared me, or, or that experience or those communities that prepared me to think about uh, how to make sense of my life as you know, both an intersection of race and gender oppression. 
Yeah. When I transitioned, I, when I changed my gender, it changed people's racialized perception of my gender. And so um, that's why I deal with a, a, a lot of the crap, you know. But I, 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 didn't have a, I, had, I didn't have a clue. I always saw myself as the sophisticated guy who, who was, you know, I wore big headphones, I was really into music, I was uh, dressed a certain way, even if it looked similar to what people were wearing next to me, I still felt unique in, in my choices. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I felt like I had so, so many different things that made me an individual. Uh, but that was when I was in a black and brown space when I was growing up. And then mm-hmm. I was inserted into uh, a more diverse spaces just by, just by growing up and becoming an adult. And through that, I developed new ideas of who I am as a threat, as a violent person, as a person who had a short temper, who was, who was ready to fight if he needed to, because people always were worried that I was the, that type of person to begin with, even though that wouldn't have related to me at all. Uh, so I'm wondering uh, whether any of that resonates with you, whether or not you think that your ideas of who you are have changed significantly since you've transitioned. I would say at about the year three mark, and this may resonate with your experience, or at least your experience reminded me a lot of this. Around the, the year three mark, looking back, I had begun to deal with so much crap from cops, and I was also dealing with crap in the uh, the lesbian community, people questioning the legitimacy of trans guys' transition, and... At the time, uh, didn't have anybody really to talk to about any of it. I felt very alone in the world, and I was going through a process where I was finding my identity, stitching it together anew, but there was no foundation really there. I had already yanked the foundation out from under myself. I was like, okay, this is who I am. This is just who I am. So, you know, I'm so F it. This is who I am. This is what it is. So I got to find my brothers. So I joined a boxing gym. I kept my clothes, and I came became what you call, you know, just a, a, pr- a proud hood hood Negro. You know, I don't want to say a different <laughs> word, but yeah. I was like, yeah, this is who. I, and so I I walked into that, but still, I like I embraced it. But but here's the thing, I wasn't a thug. That's yeah. the thing. It wasn't authentic for me. And my mother didn't raise, you know, somebody to like that, and and I couldn't be that anyway. So it was like it was like a studio gangster, right? It was like <laughs> so I. But I remember something at that time that now I look back and I regret. And at that time, I had all of my pictures, even pictures from childhood, and I was so down and distraught. Uh, and just so in a place of emptiness and f- feeling like the, I only had one choice, and that's to be this black man that America saw, yeah. that I took the pictures and I threw them away because the pictures reminded me of my past, and they reminded me uh, of a time when I wasn't dealing with that sort and so I got to the point I was like this is who I am so I need to let these things go this is no longer part of my identity it's no longer part of who I it's not even a part of my past at this point because no one who sees me every day on the street has no sense of this is who my past they have no sense of the complexity of my my life they just see me as a perpetrator and so I I regret that I wish I had those pictures but 
I, I felt like I had to throw those pictures out so that I could completely bury an identity that was getting in the way of me acknowledging the reality that yeah. I was walking, you know, through this new door. Um, and so the thing that, you know, really, um, I think where I am today is um, I, like you, I like to be, I'm individual, I like to be unique. I define my, my values for myself. And I'm, I'm not that person. I'm not that um, thug or white America's worst nightmare. But I'm no pushover either. Tristan seems like he's settled into his new body and identity. He's comfortable sharing these stories and does so with his gender studies students at California State University. As someone who's lived on both sides of the gender gap, he has an incredibly wide perspective on how the ways people perceive us can impact our lives and what we could do to protect ourselves from it. Like I tell my students, um, especially most of my students, I'd say two-thirds of them are um, immigrants uh, and um, or people of color, and and I, we talk a lot about about how you're going to be perceived uh, on the job market, and how you should write a letter, how you should show up, and and so I you should be professional, you should be courteous, but when you go to such great lengths to make someone's unreasonable, crazy ideas about you, when you go to that great length to um, make them feel comfortable. Um, implicitly we end up legitimizing that person's beliefs and those stereotypes and you're just as stuck in 2019 as we were in 2001 with no movement in fact worse our views of Muslims and Islam today than what it was when we um, first decided to use it as an excuse to go bomb Iraq so um, I, I tell people to be themselves and um and don't don't try to be someone's. Um, you know, I think another thing way to do it too. It, this is this is mean. I can't say everybody does this, but I of tend course. to confront people. Yeah. I'm a professor though. I have a PhD and three master's degrees, so I come <laughs> with a little bit of you know confidence and and you also some artillery. you know I'm, yeah. I'm yeah you know I have some confidence in some some a framework conceptual framework, and I'll I'll tell people uh, in a nice way uh, about their racism. Uh, and about their sexism, um, and and I'm old enough, you know, it takes maybe sometimes your 20s to get through this, but if I don't say what I have to say in that moment, then I may walk away saying it for the next three or four hours or three or four <laughs> days or having a conversation, an argument perhaps, yeah. fighting with that person in my head. So before <laughs> I let that person rent free space in my head, I'm just going to let them sit, you know, with these words and let them contem- let them have my words and let yeah. them chew on that for a while. That, that's so totally gonna... me. I'm the guy the next day oh, taking really? a shower thinking, oh, I should have said this. I should have said that. Oh, whatever. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. So that's a, that, that approach is a little different than what you were describing for how you changed during the, with the police. Uh, do you think uh, that there's no room for that overlap? You can't teach them anything. Yeah. I, that's a dangerous situation to try and teach a police officer who's coming at you with it. If they're coming at you with antagonism, you don't, I wouldn't, I, I'm not going to make it in, I don't want antagonism any worse. Because the moment, to, for me in that moment, I just want to survive. Yeah. And trying to teach a police officer about their racism is uh, probably, probably resistant to begin with. If they're, they're already pulling it out on you, if the very reason is because of their racism, they're probably not going to learn uh, much from that. 
because they have the power. I've never really come to terms with how other people see me differently than I see myself as a young, brown-skinned, bearded Arab man in America. But I'm learning that that's really not up to me. I mean, I can try and be myself, but I'm competing with an entire culture that's conditioned people to have other ideas. And as I get older, I'm trying to recognize the ways that I've mirrored what some folks have expected of me, so I can leave those traits behind. Tristan learned many of those lessons as an adult, so he's been able to process it with an impressive amount of wisdom. His experience and skills as an academic gave him this unique ability to help others see how they can be who they really are, not just how other people see them. He knows because he's lived it like few others have. Man Up is hosted and written by me, Eamon Ismail. Our producers are Cameron Drews and Danielle Hewitt. Our executive producers are Jeffrey Bloomer and Lowen Liu. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. June Thomas is the senior managing producer. And TJ Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcasts. And remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Not only do we appreciate it, but it also helps new people find the show. So support the kid and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to leave us a voicemail by calling 805-626-8707. That's 805-MAN-UP-07. Or just send one to manup at slate.com, and we might feature it on the show. We'll be back next week with more Man Up. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.